Go ahead and be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, the text is verses 19 through 23, but I'm going to back up to verse 6, just to remind you of the context. It's important because I'll be referring back to it. This is God's Word. It has everything that you and I need for spiritual life and godliness. Give it your reverent attention as I read it to you. Verse 6, Galatians 3. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the spirit and the scripture rather, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For The righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree in order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this. The law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law... It is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed should come to whom The promise had been made. That's Jesus, by the way. 
Now, this mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were all, excuse me, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Amen. I actually read more there than I was originally going to read, but I felt the need to do that, and so I did. Uh, I will only be preaching through about verse 24, however. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time. O Lord, we are weak. We are still sinners. We have bodies that are weak, uh, that are prone to um, shut down when we're inactive, like sitting. Uh, Lord, we have spirits and minds that uh, easily wander uh, onto things that are easier to ponder. And Lord, we um, are just generally prone to idolatry, even as Christians, if we're not very, very careful. Lord, we ask that you would help us in this time, this oh-so-important time, uh, during corporate worship, when special promises attend uh, that don't apply any other time during the week, on this sure day, which is a special day, a means of grace when properly observed, and during this most important of means of saving and sanctifying grace, the preaching of the word. Would you please be here? Would you please help all of us? Help me, help all of us who are listening to uh, listen carefully and to not be deceived, but to be instructed in accordance with your word and your will. We ask this for your glory. And in Jesus' name, amen. Kids, um, I know this has happened to you, and it's happened to all of us. Uh, You have probably at some point in your life when it was uh, dark outside, um, and uh, so there was no light coming into any windows, and you opened a, a door, perhaps, into a dark room where the lights were off. And it was very, very dark in that room. You all have done that, right? Just nod your head if you've 
gone into a dark room where there's no light coming in from the moonlight or anything. It's just really pitch black. What do you do when you are entering a dark room where it's pitch black and you can't see anything? Flick the switch, right? You turn the lights on in order to make you aware of what's in the room, right? So you don't trip over something and, you know, hurt yourself or, uh, you know, damage something in the room because you bumped into it and it was fragile, like a lamp or something like that. We turn the lights on to uh, expose what's in the room, make us aware of what's in the room so that we can not, uh, so something bad doesn't happen, essentially. And that's why we use lights to, to make us aware of what's going on in that place. Well, you know, kids, God's word is very much like a light in a dark room. Uh, it's not identical, but it's, it's a lot like a light in a, in a pitch black room. God uses his word, his written word, and his preached word, by the way, uh, which is preached from the written word. He uses that word to provide men women, and children, like yourselves, to provide us uh, with... Uh, he, he provides, rather, the his word, but in particular, a particular portion of his word, and that is his uh, the Ten Commandments, which are a summary of the whole moral law, and I'll explain that more in a minute. But he uses that portion of his word, uh, which is repeated throughout the, the Bible, uh, the, the commandments and, and various... Uh, um, uh, derivatives of that commandment. And he gives us the, those commandments to make us aware of something. And that thing that he wishes to make us aware of, all sinners, actually, even unbelievers, particularly unbelievers, is to make them aware of their sin. Make them aware of the fact that they don't obey God. That they uh, have broken God's laws that they are um, therefore, uh, that God is therefore displeased with them. And God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, that if you children haven't memorized those commandments, you might ask your mommy and daddy, would you please help me to memorize the Ten Commandments? Because they summarize what all the other commandments in the Bible, all the other commandments come under one of those ten. It's a summary of God's law, moral law. And we need to know what those, as Christians we need to know them, and non-Christians need to know them as well. And they do, because it's actually written in their hearts, the Bible tells us. But we're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But my point is, the scriptures, particularly the Ten Commandments, are given by God to shine a light on the darkness of our own hearts, so that we might flee to the one who is the light, and that is Jesus. And that's what this passage teaches us, basically. And you'll hear that as I go along. Um, in previous times, we've been in this passage, and I read some of what we have lo- uh, been looking at in, on previous occasions the last few times we've been in Galatians. We saw that uh, God agreed to uh, justify Abraham, and justification is the first part of salvation. We are, we are saved when we are justified. Uh, we are also being saved when we are sanctified. And we are ultimately to be saved when we are glorified. Uh, and scripture uses the word saved uh, to describe all three points in that process. 
but a person who is justified uh, is always going to be sanctified and glorified, and if you're not justified, you're not going to heaven. You're not saved at all. But uh, And Paul has been talking principally about justification, but it is the initial, um, if you will, um, portion of salvation. It is the initial way in which we are saved. And God agreed to justify and save Abraham and all of his spiritual descendants solely on the basis of faith. And we read of that in verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it, his belief in God and God's promises, was reckoned to him by God as righteousness. It's another way of saying he was made right with God. He was reconciled to God. We saw that there. And that reconciliation with God, that, that um, justification by God, was given to Abraham and to all those who, like Abraham, believed God because of the promise that God gave. God gave a promise. And that actually was, it was, it was uh, more than one promise, but it was overall one promise. And what was that promise? It was made to Abraham. Well, it was the promise that God himself had made to Abraham uh, to send a savior, a seed of the woman who would just come through Abraham's descendants to send a Savior into the world who would rescue God's chosen people, all those who, like Abraham, would believe God for their salvation, to rescue those people from the power and penalty of their sins and and make them right with God, make them righteous in God's sight. And it was a promise that Abraham and his spiritual descendants would have to believe in and rest in in order to experience that justification and salvation. That happened back, it's recorded, uh, the initial promise was made in uh, Genesis 12, was reiterated and confirmed in Genesis 15, and then finally ratified in Genesis uh, 17. And all three are part and parcel one one covenant that is... uh, uh, that is articulated in those three different places. And that covenant, um, it wasn't until 430 years later, Paul tells us, at Sinai that God um, gave his people the law that was summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's 430 years later that the Mosaic Covenant, which was made there at Sinai, uh, that included the giving of that law, was made. Now we need to be clear about something. This is very important because this this messes up a lot of people who read God's word if they don't understand this point uh, for very, in various ways. But it's clear that what was going on when God gave the law at Sinai that he wasn't giving a law to the world or laws to the world that weren't already there. Those ten laws were already in existence. Where were they in existence? They were in existence in the heart of everybody. From Adam onward. We, we often in, uh, in our circles refer to that law as the moral law. Uh, the uh, what what is moral, what is right and wrong, a law of right and wrong that is built into our very um, uh, creation when God created us, and still is true and given to uh, sinners today uh, after the fall. And so, what happened at Sinai was it was a 
codification, you might say, a writing down of, in a formal way, of the moral law that had been uh, in effect ever since the beginning of creation, had been written in the hearts of men and and remains in effect and will remain in effect forever. The moral law is derived from the character and the being of God, therefore it cannot change. Because God cannot change. Well, in addition to that moral law summarized in those Ten Commandments that were given at Sinai in the Mosaic administration of the covenant, um, the law that God gave there also included not just the Ten, but it it included numerous ceremonial applications of God's moral law. That's what the ceremonial law is. It's uh, ritual applications and specific applications of the moral law. And those ceremonial laws would remain in effect for only a certain period of time and then would come to an end. And they came to an end uh, when Jesus, the seed promised to Abraham, showed up in time and space when he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was the fulfillment of all the types and shadows that were found in the ceremonial laws, the writer of the Hebrews tells us. And with his coming, all those types and shadows, all the ceremonial applications of the moral law ceased to be uh, applicable uh, anymore because the, the antitype, Jesus, had arrived. Now, getting back to the text that we're looking at here, uh, in the previous section that I read a moment ago, Paul went to considerable uh, lengths to make the point that God's gracious covenant with Abraham was not set aside, was not, uh, or even modified in the least, uh, as a result of God's promulgation of the moral law uh, at Mount Sinai some 430 years later through Moses. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant remained in effect, even as this uh, addition to the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, uh, was added, the Abrahamic covenant remained in effect. Now the obvious question, I say it's obvious, uh, it is to many if you think about it uh, uh, for a while, that was probably in Paul's minds, uh, Paul's readers' minds, and maybe in your mind as well, is this. If the law, uh, given or promulgated at Mount Sinai, codified at Mount Sinai, if that moral law did not replace God's earlier covenant promise to Abraham as a means of being justified and going to heaven, then what's the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law? If it was already in people's hearts, and it was, Paul makes that point, by the way, in Romans chapter 5, very eloquently. Uh, It was uh, uh, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Why did it reign? Because people sinned. And uh, because there was law present that condemned that sin to death. But why, why, why why the need to have it written down on tablets of stone? And the addition of the... uh, um, other uh, ceremonial laws on top of that. Why, why did that happen? Well, the answer to Paul's uh, question, at least in part to that question, I should say, that I just asked, is found here in this passage that we're looking at. So, verses 19 and following. Two points uh, that I'm going to spend the rest of our time looking at from this passage. The first is this. The law, 
uh, and here I'm talking about the Mosaic Law, particularly the Ten Commandments, was uh, and is designed to expose, like the light in the room, children, the law was designed and is designed to expose and increase the guilt of the unconverted sinner, the unconverted sinner's guilt. That's one of the purposes of the law, to expose and increase the unconverted sinner's guilt. This passage teaches that, but it also teaches something else. The law was and is designed to drive the unconverted sinner to Jesus Christ for his justification and salvation. And we're going to look in the remainder of our time at those two points. First, the law... Uh, the Ten Commandments in particular, was and still is, all ten of them, designed to expose and increase the unconverted sinner's guilt. Now, this probably, if I said this uh, to most American folks out there, they would probably uh, be shocked to hear that, that God gave something that was designed to expose guilt and increase guilt among people. Why would, a, why would God do such a thing? In fact, most people, not just Americans, but around the world, if you were to say, yeah, God gave the law in order to make people more worthy of God's judgment, more uh, deserving of God's wrath, because it made their guilt bigger in his sight. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people. For you see, every religion in the world, every religion in the world that I'm aware of, and I'm pretty sure, uh, and I've never heard of one that this uh, is, there's an exception to, with the exception of Christianity, which is the exception. Every religion in the world of which I'm aware teaches that one's spiritual well-being in this life and the next is obtained by observing some form of law. Whether it be the law written in their hearts, their own sense of what is right and what is wrong that God gives to every man uh, upon uh, conception, or whether it's um, the civil or ceremonial or moral legislation that's found uh, in the Old Testament, or whether it's just the Ten Commandments themselves. But every religion in the world, save Christianity, every major religion certainly, teaches that you get right with God or you go to heaven or nirvana or whatever, a better place, by doing things. Doing right and not doing wrong and having the right that you do outweigh the wrong that you do. It's true of Islam. It's true of, uh, of modern-day Judaism. It wasn't true of Old Testament biblical Judaism, by the way. But modern-day Judaism, it certainly is true. It's true of all sorts of Hinduism, Shintoism, uh, Buddhism, all the isms. It's true of them all. It's not true of Christianity. Law-keeping has nothing to do with getting, making us right in the eyes of God of pardoning our sin. Just because the majority believes something to be true does not make it right. Kids, remember that when you're tempted uh, by your friends, or maybe tempted by your friends to do things that you shouldn't do, and all your friends are doing it, uh, but you need to go, just because my friends are doing it, doesn't mean I should do it. 
Maybe you need new friends if all your friends are doing it too, by the way. Anyway, that's an aside. Anyway, God makes it abundantly clear in his word that salvation by means of law-keeping is utterly impossible. It's utterly impossible, regardless of which set of laws or rules we are talking about. It's impossible to please the true God, the God of the Bible, through law-keeping. And Paul makes this point, this point in verse 21 of our passage. He says in verse 21, Is the law then contrary to the promise, promises of God? May it never be. And then he says this, For if a law, and this is a hypothetical, if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on law. But he'd already made the point, it's not. It's not based on law. It's based on a promise and belief in a promise that God has made. And his point is, there is no law that is able to impart life. That is able to make somebody spiritually alive and right with God. It doesn't exist. And this point is made elsewhere by Paul. In uh, verse 11 of our same chapter, we read, uh, Now that no one is justified, that is, pardoned of their sin and and, uh, declared righteous by God in the courtroom of heaven, that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. And then he cites uh, a uh, verse from Habakkuk in the Old Testament. The righteous man will live, how will he live? He'll live by faith. Not by faith and law-keeping, but by faith. Also, Paul makes this point over in Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, when he says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God. Why? He says in verse 20, Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Law-keeping is never going to save a soul who tries to get to heaven that way. Rather than providing the unconverted sinner with a means of obtaining eternal life, the law promulgated at Mount Sinai, which was already written in uh, the sinner's heart, serves only to expose, but that's writing down, actually, serves to expose and to aggravate the guilt of mankind, the fact that it was written down uh, at Sinai. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 19 when he says um, that the law was added because of transgressions. That's his point there, Uh, although it's not always immediately evident when when you read it on a quick read. But that's his point. The law was designed to expose and increase the unconverted sinner's guilt. First of all, by uh, uh, the, the uncon- the, uh, it was designed to expose and increase the uncon- unconverted. I'm having troubles reading my notes. Sinner's understanding and sense of his own guilt, but also his actual guilt. So first, uh, it's designed to expose uh, his understanding and sense of his own guilt. Um, after all, prior to the codification of the moral law at Mount Sinai, the sinners, prior to that point in time, any sinner's uh, accusers were only his own conscience, the moral law written in his heart, and the devil and his angels. And I suppose perhaps his neighbor too might have helped out now and then. 
That's what, that's the only places you got accusation was a sense of, I didn't think I should have done that. Or the devil, um, accusing, however he would do that, uh, prior to, uh, the giving of, uh, the codification of the law at Mount Sinai. Uh, and then perhaps in the neighbor saying, you shouldn't have done that. But you see aggravations coming, uh, accusations rather coming from these sources were often vague or inaccurate. But once the moral law was inscribed on two stone tablets some 3,450 years ago, which is about right, there was added to our conscience, to the devil's accusations and that of our neighbor, um, a third, far more, or a fourth rather, far more authoritative uh, and specific, far more specific and probing accuser of uh, that, that, that is added to the mix, if you will, of accusers. And that is the written law. The codified law in black and white in our, um, in our, in our Bibles uh, and on stone back in Moses' day. That is, um, and the result of this is that has been a heightened understanding of where I have specifically erred and sinned, and a sense of a heightened understanding of my own guilt before God, because it's written there and it's accusing me as I read it. You see, I'm talking about the unconverted sinner now. But it not only increases the unconverted sinner's sense of his own guilt, but it also increases his actual guilt. We read in Romans chapter 5 verse 20 this to the point. Paul says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he goes on and explains how Christ brought that grace. But notice the law came in that transgression might increase. Likewise, over in chapter 7 of Romans, uh, chapter 7, verse 8, we read, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting, notice, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. But what he doesn't say, but is implied there, is that with when the law is given and inscripturated, sin comes alive in me. The very presence of the Ten Commandments and the various applications of those commandments scattered throughout the pages of the Old and New Testaments provokes and elicits greater levels of sin from us than it would otherwise if, if, if it were not, had not been written down and um, shown to us, as it were, at uh, Mount Sinai. Um, I think of the example, I've used this before, and some of you have heard it, but it's a good one. You go to a park... And you see a uh, a uh, bench that's at the park, and it's uh, has a sign on it that says "Wet paint, please do not touch." And more often than not, people go over and touch it because it told me not to touch it. So I need to touch it. 
You see what I'm saying? It produces a sinful response in the unconverted, sometimes sadly the converted, heart. Uh, And it increases our guilt, our actual guilt, by making us want to break that law that we are told we are not to break. And when it's written down, it's right there, if you will, in our faces in a way that when it's written on our heart, it's not. Notice I keep saying unconverted. That is important. The law's role, one of its principal roles, is to convict uh, and expose the guilt of the unconverted sinner. Not the converted as much. If you are a Christian, the law serves a somewhat different purpose in your life. This is that purpose is what is often called the third use of the law. The first use of the law is the one I just talked about, and that is to expose sin and guilt. And the, and the unbeliever in particular needs that, ex, that, that exposure. The second use of the law that theologians talk about is um, uh, use of the moral law, I should say, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is to restrain sin in the world. Unbelievers know that it's not a good idea to go around murdering people. It doesn't make for very good communal relations. They know that they're not supposed to commit adultery and lie. And even in their, even in their fallen and unconverted condition, they sense the weight of those laws and try to at least outwardly keep those laws that they know are there. And so it, the, the law's presence, even for the unconverted, puts a, a damper on the expression of evil in the world. That's the, uh, the second use of the law. But then there is this third use of the law, which is for the believer. The person who has already been forgiven of his sin is united to Christ by faith. The third use of the law is to show Christians how to live a life that glorifies and honors God and is a blessing to others around us. So, for example, while refraining from being critical of others will not help get you into heaven... Um, it is something that you need to do in order to honor God, to, to not be looking for uh, the foibles of others and pointing out the foibles of others or the sins of others. Likewise, telling the truth. Uh, while uh, telling the truth, even when it is difficult to do so in some situations, while doing that won't contribute to your justification in any way, it is something that you need to do to express your gratitude to God for what he has done for you in Christ. So as a believer, the law is there to show us how to please and glorify God. If you're an unbeliever, if you're listening to me either here in this room or uh, via the internet, um, if you're not a Christian, that is, you've not trusted in Jesus Christ, who is 100% God and 100% man, to, uh, to make you right with God and to reconcile you with God and get you uh, uh, out of hell, as it were, if you're not a Christian at this point in time, then you desperately need to come to grips with the magnitude of your own guilt before God in the sight of that holy judge who will judge you. And so exposure to his moral law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, is just what you need. You need to go to Exodus 20, which is 
one of the places where the uh, Ten Commandments is found, the other place is Deuteronomy chapter 5. And you need to go to those places, and you need to read those written in black and white in your Bible, if you, ha- if you have one. If you don't, you need to get one. And you need to see how you have broken those laws, because you have. We all have. And you need to understand that if you break one law, you are made liable to God's wrath forevermore in hell. All it takes is one sin to land a person in hell. And you read the Bible, and you read particularly the moral law in the Ten Commandments, and you'll know that you've committed a lot more than one sin. And that's true of you children as well as it is of myself. We are all lawbreakers, kids, and adults as well. So, the law was and is designed to expose and increase the unconverted sinner's guilt. But secondly, the law was and is designed to drive the unconverted sinner to Jesus Christ for his salvation. You see, by exposing and increasing the sinner's guilt before God in the, in the sight of God, by doing this, the, the, the moral law given at Sinai or uh, codified at Sinai was actually furthering the terms of the covenant which God had previously made with Abraham, a gracious covenant. So the law was actually furthering the goal of the previous covenant that was not nullified when the Mosaic law was given. It was, it was there to further that uh, the, um, the effect of the Abrahamic covenant. Now, how did it do that? How did the law, the codification of the moral law, at Sinai, enhance the, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, the effectiveness of the Abrahamic covenant? Two ways. First, by causing us to despair, us being just sinners in general, by causing us to despair at the thought of making ourselves acceptable or pleasing to God through our own efforts at keeping law. That's one of the ways in which it points us to Christ. It, it causes us to realize there's no way I can please God by what I do. Because I have messed up, I am messing up, and I will mess up. I can't be perfect. I never will be. And you're right. That's true. Well, you will when you get to heaven if you're a believer. But not before then. And so... So the law and the weight of it and the guilt that we feel when we read it causes us to realize, I, am, I, can't, I can't do this. I'm, I'm cooked. I'm done. Unless God does something. And he did. He did. Well, how does the, how does the law, uh, or the second, second point, the second way in which the law um, points us to Christ is this. It forces us, and I've already indicated this, but it forces us to look elsewhere for our acceptance with God, for our reconciliation with God. Look at verses 22 through 24 of our passage. This makes this very point. Verse 22, Galatians 3. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, 
you can't you can't you can't please God by obeying uh, uh, by obeying law is is the point there and 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 you're doomed uh, unless God does something but the scripture has shut up all men under sin that the promise by faith the promise being God's promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe for before faith, and here he's talking about the full revelation of the new covenant when he says faith here. For before faith came, the new covenant, we, meaning we Jews, were kept under the custody of the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed, in other words, in the new covenant age, which, as Paul's writing, he is now in. And we are in. And then he says in verse 24, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. See that? That's how the law, the Mosaic administration of the one covenant of grace, enhances the the effect of the Abrahamic um, administration of the covenant of grace, which highlights the need to just trust in the promises of God and do nothing other than trust for our right standing before him. The law says you you got to despair of hope in yourself so you can see Jesus is your law keeper. And remember this, by the way. Remember the promise that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant? We are told God essentially said to him, I will, I will be a God both to you and to your spiritual descendants and will allow all of you to spend eternity with me in heaven on the basis of what your unique descendant, you Abraham, your unique descendant who will come after you some 2,000 years later, although he didn't know that, as a result of what your unique descendant will do on your behalf and as you put your faith in him. That's what essentially what he said to Abraham. I will be a God to you and to your spiritual descendants forever if you will trust in your descendant and what he does for you to save you and that alone. God was promising Abraham and his descendants forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ. And the law that God inscribed on those two tablets at Sinai has helped point Abraham's spiritual descendants to Jesus ever since. To Jesus' life and death and resurrection from the dead that we were reminded of in the Lord's Summer. And again, just to recap, the reason why the law points us to Jesus is because the law demands perfection. Perpetual, personal, perfect obedience. If you're going to use law to make yourself right with God, that's what you've got to do. And the law says you can't do it. So you have to flee to one who has. And that's Jesus who because he was God and man, perfectly obeyed his own laws uh, in our place so that his obedience could be credited to us when we believed in Christ. 
Are you trusting in Jesus alone to save you, to justify you, and also to sanctify and glorify you? Jesus alone can do that. Yes, baptism is important. Yes, church membership is important. Yes, being a good father is important. Uh, uh, a uh, obedient child. All those things are important. But none of them save. None of them can contribute one ounce to your salvation. And if you think, if you're trusting in any of those things, you don't have, you don't have Jesus. You're on your own. And you will... Your law-keeping is what will be examined in the day of judgment. Only your law-keeping, Jesus won't be there. And you'll be found wanting if you're trusting in law and your obedience to it and your works. Trust in Christ. If you've not done that, trust in Christ alone. And he will save you forevermore. And you'll be right with God. Uh, and like Melita... Uh, our dear sister who went to be with the Lord a week ago, uh, you can be eager to face God when you leave this life. But only if you're in Christ, safely trusting only in Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this gospel truth. We thank You that it's only by resting in Your promised mediator who came already. We are 2,000 years after His coming only by resting in him and what he did in his life, death, and resurrection are we made right with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our law keeper, that you kept the law in our place. You kept the positive commandments of the law and you endured the punishment that the law demanded for disobedience, namely eternal death. And you suffered that and absorbed that wrath that we deserve. Thank you so much. Lord, if there's anyone listening to me today, here in this room, or... Um, remotely, who has never trusted in Jesus as described in the pages of the scriptures, trusted in him alone, would you please give such a one the faith that only you can give? It is a gift, saving faith is. Would you please grant it to anyone listening to me who doesn't have it, so that that person too might be reconciled and ready to go to heaven uh, whenever he or she leaves this world. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Before he ascended into heaven, uh, gave his church uh, two holy ordinances that uh, we sometimes refer to as sacraments, um, but they're holy ordinances that he instituted himself. Um, the uh, baptism is one of them, of course, and the Lord's Supper is the other. record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in a number of places, in the New Testament, one of which is Luke chapter 22, starting uh, in verse 19. I'll read it to you. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. The Lord's Supper, uh, we believe Scripture teaches, is uh, a sign uh, or a symbol, but it is more than just a symbol. It is also a seal uh, of the new covenant. Baptism is also a sign and seal of the new covenant. 
uh, and of entrance into the covenant community. Uh, but it is a sign and a seal of that, and a picture also of the unity of the body, uh, the spiritual body, the body of Christ. Um, it is a sign or a symbol in that it symbolizes through the elements themselves and uh, the handling of them by uh, myself. It symbolizes uh, the covenant and its uh, ratification through the death uh, and burial and resurrection and ascension of Christ. But it is also something more than just a symbolism. The Bible indicates that it is also a seal. Um, of the um, righteousness that is by faith. And that is, it is a promise from God. God is saying something that when, specifically God the Son, who is the one who, this is his table, he is saying something to those who are partaking rightly, uh, that is by faith in Jesus alone. He is saying, uh, he is confirming, uh, guaranteeing afresh his covenant promises to those who are feeding upon Christ in their hearts by faith. I'm not talking about a carnal feeding now. I'm talking about spiritual feeding on uh, Christ and what he did, his work and his body uh, by faith, trusting only in Christ for their uh, right standing before God. And God is reasserting, if you will, through this meal, his promises made to you, uh, if you are a Christian. Uh, but... Uh, because it is a sign and a seal, it is also a means of grace. Now, what I mean by that is it's a ma- means of sanctifying grace to the person who's a believer. Um, the, the, the partaking of the sacraments doesn't in itself save anybody. You can't be saved by baptism, by the act of, which is a work, by the way. Um, you can't be saved by a good work of, uh, of submitting to baptism or a, or, uh, or, or submitting to this meal, taking this meal to your lips. It doesn't save you. Um, Jesus uh, saves. But uh, for the believer who partakes, and only believers should partake, it is a means that the Holy Spirit can use when we rightly partake to strengthen us spiritually and make us more, better equipped to serve God in, in the coming days and weeks and months and years ahead, should God give those to us. Uh, and evidence of uh, the uh, fact that God does use the meal to bless. Uh, the, the cup is referred to by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 as a cup of blessing, meaning that when you partake of it, blessing comes if you, the assumption is that you're rightly partaking. Uh, and so it is a means of sanctifying grace to strengthen us in our walk of faith and help us to uh, uh, presumably to resist sin better uh, and trust God more. It is of great value to the believer to partake, but it is only for the true believer in Christ. If you are um, here uh, and you're not sure you're a Christian, please don't partake, because uh, Paul warns that people should not partake of the meal if they are not rightly, uh, if they're not prepared to take the meal, uh, that is to say they're rightly uh, related to God. Uh, uh, Grave warnings accompany uh, are, are, are given in the Bible for those who wrongly partake of the meal. And if you're an unbeliever and you partake, you're wrongly partaking. Uh, it's dangerous to your soul and well-being. Um, so one needs to be a, a Christian, um, and you need to be a baptized uh, uh, Christian. Uh, baptism uh, doesn't save you, but it's an indication that you are 
if, if, if Christian baptism, that, uh, that you are a member of a church uh, where there is the gospel is being presented and the uh, leaders of that church have, uh, have baptized you, indicating you are um, uh, a genuine member of the, the church in their eyes, and that helps us to make sure that uh, somebody isn't coming wrongly to the table. So you need to be a baptized Christian uh, in good standing, but you don't need to be a member of this church to partake. Um, we, you need to be a true Christian and a member of a church that does teach the message that I uh, just articulated, and it's only by faith alone and Christ alone that one is made right with God. And if you're a member of such a church, you know yourself to be a Christian, you're free to come. Um, one other thing, if you're playing games with God, you shouldn't come. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you are cherishing some sin in your life that you know God disapproves of, but you are sinning it anyway, and you, you're you not willing to say, I've got to fight this. Uh, you may not be a Christian at all. And even if you are a Christian, you're a very disobedient Christian at this point in time, and you should not partake. Uh, if you are... If you are defying God in some area of your life, you're clinging to some sin and unwilling to repent of it. Uh, you need to ask your, you need to consider whether or not you're a Christian at all, and you certainly need to take this time to um, reflect and repent of your sin if the Lord gives you the grace to do that. Uh, but if you're wrestling with sin, we probably all wrestled with sin this week. I have. You probably all have too. If you're wrestling with sin and had some. Um, uh, had some failures, had some um, made some mistakes, sins against the Lord, grieved his heart. Um, but you hate the fact that you did that. And you don't want to do it anymore. This is what you need. You need the strength that the Holy Spirit uh, often gives people through uh, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So let's go ahead and pray now and ask the Lord to bless our uh, our time here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the means of grace that you have given to us, your people, that you use to bless us. The, the word read, the word preached, uh, the sacraments and prayer, all of which are means that you use to bless us, to uh, bestow your covenant blessings upon us uh, further. We thank you for this means of grace that points us to our Savior and particularly to his sacrifice, his suffering on our behalf. We ask, Lord, now that you would set aside these elements from their everyday common use unto the holy purposes for which we are about to use them. And Lord, Holy Spirit, would you please Help us to partake by faith in our Savior. Uh, And as we do so, would you please bless us and bring honor to him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples as I, ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
please wait until we are all served, and then we'll eat together in the same way with uh, the wine. The body of Christ was broken for you. For you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he took the cup, and having given thanks, as we have already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. Uh, again, wait until we're all served. And there's grape juice in the middle for those in, who can, in good conscience, partake of the wine, but we would encourage you to take the wine. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your wonderful, merciful condescension to us and in this sacrament. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who hosts the table. It is you who blesses through your spirit as we partake, and we thank you that you have done so in spite of the imperfections of our service this morning. We thank you that you do not deal with us um, on the basis of our iniquities, but rather solely on the basis of your grace and, and kindness. Lord, we ask that you would help us now as we go from this place to walk as becomes the followers of Christ in the way we walk. Lord, to not follow the, the paths that uh, the world would have us walk on. That we would not follow the paths that the old man that still lies within us uh, would have us walk on. But that you would cause us, Lord, to shun evil, uh, to... Uh, to serve you joyfully and obediently, and that you would help us, Lord, to be godly witnesses to a lost and dying world. And we ask for the specifically for the privilege of being able to share our faith with someone who doesn't know the Savior, you, that we know, and that we might have the privilege of leading such a lost soul to Christ through our, uh, through our evangelism. Lord, we pray that you would help us in our speech this week to speak as becomes the followers of Christ, uh, to uh, speak in ways that are edifying and truthful, um, that are uh, that are uplifting and that point people in a heavenly direction. Uh, even when we are engaged in speech that doesn't involve uh, heavenly conversation directly. Please help us to be uh, Christ-like to those around us. And we ask that you would give us um, perseverance in faith. We know, Lord, that without your gracious enabling, we would all apostatize. Um, Only you can sustain us in faith in Christ and our union with him. Please do so and strengthen that bond. Um, And would you please honor yourself through our lives this week. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.